some questions you didn't ask with me, Naisha Frey. Let's get back into the conversation. Let's talk about it. How has your African-American identity and culture shaped how you parent Malia, your daughter? So for me, I think in the very beginning, a lot of my fears came from everything I knew about surviving as a Black girl, as a Black woman, had been about learning to speak up, learning to use my voice. And so it really terrified me, the idea of her struggling with her voice. And so, of course, what I didn't know at the time was that my own ableism and the way that I valued spoken words as the most valuable uh, way of speaking got in the way that it also fueled my fears, right? And so now that we've gotten access to these tools where she can use spelling to communicate, that she can advocate for herself and advocate for other autistic people using spelling to communicate, that, you know, I realized that, that some of the ways that I navigated as a Black girl, that she is finding these other ways to navigate. And I similarly, you know, one of the things that I struggled with early on was finding a space for her that both uh, supported her brilliance and that was also, you know, connected and supported to all her identities, right? Mm -hmm. So we were in elementary school where it was Black teachers who loved you and Black children who adored her. And I loved that school so much. The challenge was, we actually had two challenges. So one challenge was they decided not to put the program for the students with disabilities in that school anymore. So they moved it to another school, um, mm. which you know, we see is a challenge that frequently happens with our children, um, them not being able to find that stability because of these you know, constant changes. And then, you know, that was so devastating. And so we ultimately wound up in a private school where she wasn't, it wasn't no longer a predominantly black environment like she had been in, um, but the teachers were trained in the, the tools and supports that she needed. And so that was, that's been the challenge of, you know, which one of her identities to emphasize, right? Um, but what has been fortunate is that she found herself a uh, a multicultural girl clique, and they love each other so much. <laughs> they talk constantly about how much they love each other and how, oh, you look beautiful. I love you so much. You're my friend forever, <laughs> always. And you just you're like, wow, I had no idea that this much love on a daily basis possible, you know, for my child to experience, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the stereotypes a lot of times about autism is that, you know, your child is going to have a hard time making friends or they're not going to be able to keep friends. Her friends love each other. So many hugs, so much love. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, like you were saying, you find that some of these fears that were just, you know, things you read about or think you find that it's because you're looking through a very narrow lens. Mm. And 
once that lens gets widened to like, these are the other possibilities. You don't just have to speak with your voice. You don't just have to tell people you love them with words, right? Um, that for me, it, you know, and that's part of what it means to be a black woman, I feel like is 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 always being widened to all these possibilities. Mm. The world told you one thing about yourself, but then you go out mm. and live, you connect and find your people and you discover so many more things. Mm. Oh gosh, now y'all see why we're such good friends. I will never let her go. Um, <laughs> so for me, as it relates to uh, my daughter's African-American identity and culture shaping how I parent her, it starts with her name. So before I was pregnant with her, her father and I agreed that we would name her after the African empire of Mali. Um, and that we would spell it just like the country, just like the empire, M-A-L-I. Um, and being a Southern Black girl, we knew that that would be a play on words, um, that it would be culturally grounded, but hopefully a, a name that the majority of people could pronounce um, and that people would, uh, you know, it would be easier for them to acclimate to. Um, and then we really wanted to kind of reinforce her Southernness and her um, her her heritage uh, because her great-grandmother on her father's side, uh, her middle name was Jean. And we thought, wow, isn't that cool, Molly Jean. Um, and so we really um, embraced uh, that part of our identity, knowing that we were passing it on to her um, and that she was a, a major uh, gift and, and precious um, part of our lives, um, an extension of our family. Um, and I think uh, for me, um, you know, it's important for her, for me to show her what it is to be an African-American woman, right? A Southern African-American woman. And a lot of that comes into play as it relates to the things that I take her to, how I expose her to things, um, the uh a lot of the things that I do with her at home um, are not as much academically focused as they are um, socially focused. So passing on to her the different um, expectations of how a young Black girl um, should uh, speak or interject into a conversation, um, especially with adults, um, learning about um, how to respond appropriately um, with respect, um, and then also the music. Um, she loves music. She loves dance. Um, she loves to express herself um, and, and finding ways that she can um, embrace that. So I remember one of the most beautiful stories um, that my mother has of her is taking her with Dr. Joy Weaver um, to a cultural concert when she was probably three or four years old. Um, it was hosted um, at one of the local universities and it was uh, musicians from the Nile. So they were um, from um, countries and cultures that ran from Egypt all the way down to the source of the Nile um, in Africa. And so um, they were they were there early and they sat up close because Joy is in a 
uh, a scooter. And so they get special seating, you know, right up in the front. Um, and Molly saw the instruments and she went straight to the instruments and started playing with them. And the band who were African of all different, you know, ethnic backgrounds, they embraced her. And as she was playing, they started playing along with her and she loved it. And um, of, of course, eventually they had her, you know, sit with my mother and um, Joy to enjoy the concert. But having those types of experiences, bringing her into those spaces, uh, making her feel comfortable, uh, making her feel welcome. Um, I think a lot of times um, it's it, it has a lot to do with exposure, right? And um, I think for me too, it's important for other people to see her because I know how important it was it is, you know, how how much of a loss I felt not having much of a touch point of a relationship um, with an ongoing relationship with um, Black people with disabilities, right? So it's important for her to be there so that she can learn and embrace her culture. Um, taking her to the art museum when there was, um, I believe it was the fashion fair exhibit and having her see, um, you know, all of these black women and black men who were, you know, exceptional in their talent in the arts, um, and helping her to see the world and see herself in it, um, not exclusively, um, but definitely um, to a place that she would understand um, that there are people who are like her, who are like her in different ways. Right. And even developing and cultivating and nurturing relationships with other black people who have children with disabilities and having friendships. So I think one of uh, my most cherished friendship that she has is her relationship with Malia. And I know that um, our families, um, you know, being able to maintain a connection with each other. It's it's interesting how they're so different, but because they've known each other since the womb and or shortly thereafter, <laughs> they have a very interesting way that they understand how to play with each other, that they value each other, that they even have, you remember uh, Maya when uh, Molly was being so goody goody and then she got in trouble and Malia was like, finally, I'm not the only one getting <laughs> You know, having these really kind of, for lack of a better word, normal friendships, right? Um, where it's like, you know, we're 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 together, um, but we're different, right? And so we love each other, but the way that I express love is different than the way that she expresses love. And I give her space to express love in her way. And she gives me space to express love in her way. Or if we need to be on two different sides of the room because we are feeling very different today, that's fine. <laughs> but there is love that's connecting us nonetheless. Um, and so I think those are some of the ways that I've really worked um, to um, incorporate um, and ensure that um, my parenting styles take into account our identity and culture as African-Americans. So with that identity and culture and how it shapes our parenting, unfortunately, there's a big part of our culture as African-Americans that is rooted in fear. It's unfortunate, but it's true. 
And so what fears do you have for your child that are especially salient because of her disability and her identity as an African-American young girl? Yeah, so I think there are two big fears. Um, one fear is just about her uh, getting lost. So she can tell you our name, she can tell you our phone number, all of these things. But I worry that if she's with a stranger, would she tell you our names? Would she do the things that we've taught her to be able to make her way back to us? Um, you know, she's constantly pushing for more freedoms. And I know that parents in general, we struggle with letting go. Um, my child, we made a, a vision board this year. Um, she put things like be able to ride my bike, which she was able to do this month. Um, she also puts um, go out, go out front by myself, which is still the rules. You can go out back where there's a fence, but not out front yet. Um, because I do have that fear about, you know, what happens if she gets lost or, you know, um, yes. So those safety fears. Um, I also fear like many black parents about the police being weaponized against her. Um, I know that, you know, um, the police, when they engage Black children, Black adults, don't have the greatest history. Um, but then when we think about a child who, you know, their loud noises or their bright lights or um, just the expectation that she speak using her mouth, that they might trigger her in ways that they don't understand. And, you know, um, they just, police in this country just don't have very good history of um, the way that they treat Black people or the way that they treat autistic people. And so um, that's definitely a fear. Um, I'm still in process and in progress with how to support myself by not being um, led by my fears and mm -hmm. to, um, you know, find healthy ways to manage them. You know, but again, that's 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 a part of the process that I'm still in journey in process on. <laughs> I think we all are, Maya. I know I am. Um, I know for me, um, you know, I worry about her in relationships. I worry about her. Um, now, I know <laughs> that she's going to go through puberty. Um, that's scary. <laughs> um, I know that she um, she's already um, developing. Um, I'm concerned about uh, people potentially taking advantage of her loving nature. Um, I know that she's a little feisty. <laughs> that has been established. I want her to know how and when to defend herself. Um, I'm not sure she knows when and how to use her strength. Um, uh, that she, I'm not sure that she has tapped into her strength um, entirely. Um, and, 
you know, I think that, I think also I, I worry about, you know, her, her ability being discounted. You know, I think about um, how important it is for people to understand that she comes from a loving and supportive village, right? And that she's not alone. Um, I th Speaking of that, you know, and even Black identity, you know, I worry about when I'm gone. And um, I worry about who is going to help her manage and negotiate the resources that I plan to leave behind for her. Um, and how is she going to manage those resources? Um, now, all of those things are, most of those things are fairly far in the future. Um, but I feel like um, they are common to most parents, but the depth of them is not, right? So um, I think a lot of parents worry about whether or not their kids are going to go to college, um, whether or not they're going to be able to qualify for a job that they're, you know, that they will be able to attain a job that they're qualified for um, and make a living, right? But when you have a child that has a disability that affects their learning um, and that affects um, even their motor functions, their muscle tone, um, which affects, you know, their, their, their strength and different things like that. Um, the, the level of worry and concern um, deepens and widens, right? Um, because one of the things that we don't want is for our children to have less than what they deserve and what they're capable of. And the way that race and even gender plays into that is that, you know, I have had enough experiences as again, a very well-educated um, black woman um, where I was discounted just because of that. Um, and knowing that she has a disability, um, I worry about how much um, that may play out in her own future. And uh, much to what, you know, Maya is sharing, you know, what tools does she have that she will be able to uh, express in whatever way she is most confident and firm in that will allow her to resist those slings and arrows from penetrating who she is um, and the wonderful person that she's growing into and becoming and that she already is. Um, and so um, I think about those things, you know, sometimes I even worry about our own people, right? And how sometimes Black people um, have some of the, you know, these, these preconceived notions and, and, and stigma and prejudice um, toward, you know, people with disabilities. Um, that's not to say that other cultures don't, they do, um, but I know my people. Right. And um, and so I worry about bullying. Right. I worry about kids, you know, wanting to use her. Um, and I think I've talked about that already. So you can tell that this is something that's on my mind. Fortunate, not anything that I've had to deal with up to this point. 
Um, but the number of years that I've been on this world allows me or requires me to kind of, and I don't even know if requirement is the accurate word, but what I do is I have those worries and fears in my back pocket, right? They're not anything that I'm having to deal with now, but, you know, kind of on the ready <laughs> for if it were to show up, you know? Um, and so those, those are some of the things that come to my mind in terms of the fears, but that means that we also have to look at what are our hopes and dreams for our child. That's especially important because of her disability. Right. And I think that I'm going to go ahead and start since I'm on a roll and then turn it over to you, Maya, um, which is my hopes and dreams are that she is able to um, completely um, invest and continue to have exposure to opportunities to build and grow all of her gifts and talents, right? Um, one of the things that I recall as a young child growing up in a, a, in a family that did not have a lot of resources, right? We did have a lot of resources and then we didn't have a lot of resources. We were poor, okay? We didn't have a lot of financial resources. Um, and there were a lot of things that I had inside of me that I didn't talk about openly with my parents because I knew that there wasn't a lot there that they could invest to, or at least that's what I thought, um, to help me to refine those things, right? Um, going to school, doing well in school, reading books, going to the library, that was something that I had access to. Um, but learning uh, how to you know, being able to invest in things like gymnastics is now a privilege that I can offer to my daughter, right? And and paying attention to her and what it is that she likes and what is her ability and what's healthy for her, right? And exposing her to those things so that she can develop those skills and talents and listening to her teachers, right? So she has this drama teacher who loves her and thinks the world of her and enjoys her in his class. And listening to that and saying, wow, so how can I make sure that she continues to um, have opportunities to um, build off of that, right? Um, even though she doesn't have a lot of words, she will one day, you know, she'll have more than she does now. And then also the fact that she is so expressive without them, like how much of a superpower is that? Um, and especially when you think about drama, right? And then seeing her personality, um, uh, I think about all the different ways that, um, non-traditional ways that she could thrive and excel. And I've said um, to some of her teachers, I would love for her to be an entrepreneur um, in whatever way that makes sense for her um, and, uh, or be in partnership or you know, but in some way, carry on um, that tradition of leadership, um, carry on that tradition of um, being creative and making it happen for yourself and for other people. So those are some of the things that I that I have in mind that my hopes and dreams for her. I want her to be the best um, that she can be at whatever it is that she is passionate about. Yes, I love this question. Question. I love that answer, and I love this question. 
So uh, what are the hopes and dreams that I have for her? Of course, I'm always hoping and dreaming right alongside her. Um, one of the big ones is that she continues the way she has to see obstacles as an opportunity for innovation to mm. her goals, right? So I'll tell you a quick story about something she spelled for me. Um, she spelled, um, teach me the math behind how computers work. Mm. I want to invent a computer for autistics. And so I asked her, you know, what would this computer be like? And she said, it would have more of the letters so that I wouldn't have to cross midline. So mm. what that means, so in, in um, some of her therapy, she works on crossing midline. So crossing the center of your body and still being able to have those fine motor skills. Um, that's a challenge that she has um, visually and then um, hand-eye coordination. And so for her, she sees this computer, this ability to type as a way that autistic people can communicate with each other and with the world, um, but that there are ways that it could be designed that it could be easier for um, autistic bodies, so, uh, particularly um, people who struggle with brain body disconnect to be able to use that computer. And so I hope that she continues in that journey of saying, you know what's wrong with this? It's not me that's wrong. It's the way that the world has been set up that didn't think about me and my body and people who are like me. And so I can do something to change that. And so I really, really hope that she uh, continues that way. I hope she stays connected to her joy. She has so much joy and just amazing ways that she expresses joy. So I hope that she stays connected to that. And then really most of all, I hope that and dream that she loves her beautiful autistic black girl, someday black woman self. And so, yes, I, if, if she continues along that path, I think that that is the path to um, all of the things that I talked about before. Oh, I love it. And it makes me think about the legacy of Ron Mace. I mentioned him earlier. And as, as I said, he was one of the originators of universal design. And that sounds so much like what Malia is talking about. And what he said about universal design is that universal design is the design of products and environments to be usable by all people to the greatest extent possible without the need for adaptation or specialized design. The intent of universal design is to simplify life for everyone by making products, communications, and the built environment more usable by as many people as possible at little or no extra cost. Universal design benefits people of all ages and abilities. And so, I, you know, when I think about equity, you know, we have to think about universal design. You know, Malia, Maya and I were pushing uh, strollers at the same time, right? And one of the things that I recognized was how difficult it was to move about and get things done when you were on wheels. 
right? So this is for my, the community that has physical disabilities, right? A lot of what we've talked about are developmental or intellectual disabilities, but physical disabilities are something that's really important for us to stress um, in this space as well. Um, and which, what, what Malia is already talking about is how do we create technology that takes into account all of these um, diverse ways of living and existing in the world. This, like you said, mind-body connection that not all of us are wired the same way, um, that we have uh, different uh, uh, intellectual and physical um, needs, um, and that there's there are ways that we can do things that makes it easier or provides options for all of us, right? Options that we haven't already thought about because we're only working from this really narrow, ableist position. And so one of the things that, you know, I think is amazing about this discussion and this experience that kind of leads to my next question is, how has parenting a child with a disability made you a better person? Mm. And it's made me a better person because it has, one, I know that having a child like doubles your heart, right? It doubles your heart capacity. And, but having a child with a disability, it made me a lot more determined um, to be successful. It made me um, a lot more and I've already been resourceful, but, you know, even more intentional with my resourcefulness. It helped me to open my eyes to, as we mentioned earlier, privileges that I take for granted and opportunities that I take for granted. It, it, it helps me to um, think outside of a box that, you know, it, it, it limits me and my worldview, okay? Um, it, it helps me in, in the sense that the box limits my, my worldview. And so I have to open up that box and consider more people um, and consider different types of people and consider different types of families, right? And consider different types of stresses and stressors. It's, it's given me a higher capacity for grace. It's helped me to slow down. Let me say that slow down. And if anybody knows me, they're probably laughing right now because I'm notoriously late. But <laughs> what I mean by that is um, Molly, she develops slower intellectually, right? And what it means is that I'm able to count her blessings more clearly, our blessings, her advancements, are, you know, they mean so much more to me um, seeing her progress incrementally, right? And so I um, I notice more because I'm forced to, right? Um, that I can't run past the ball. I can't run past the goal. I have to pay attention. I have to um, move a little bit more at her pace and not my pace right? Or not the pace of other kids her age. I have to be in tune with her. I have to be in tune with her in a different way because of the way that she communicates. 
because I have to understand um, what is termed unintelligible com communication or utterances based on what I know about her, right? Um, and based on what I know about and recognize in our environment and using those, those context clues um, to help me to understand what it is that she's trying to communicate. It also helps me as a parent in the sense of um, my expectations of her and her emotions. Um, if she's upset, I have to slow down because I need to investigate more of how is she feeling? What is she going through right now? I have to be able to give her more grace for making mistakes or not getting it right the first time. I have to recognize that she has a different uh, capacity of understanding and um, still hold her to, to be accountable, but the way in which I do it is different. Um, it's, it's a lot more um, compassionate. I also have to be very careful with my language. I have to be very direct and I have to be concise and simple and not overly flowery and overly, you know, so my communication style has to change, um, which is good in a lot of ways. Nothing wrong with that. Um, and so this and more, I could probably keep going, but I won't. I want to hear from Maya, and I'm sure you do too. How has parenting a child with a disability made you a better person? Oh, wow. It has made me a better person in so many ways. I feel like the biggest way is that it has required me to reflect on myself. So I feel like many times as parents, we're, we're told and encouraged to think of ourselves as, as having all the answers or knowing what to do or correcting our children's behavior, you know, sort of positioning them as the issue. One of the biggest and most powerful lessons for me was that day when I was actually working with a letterboard coach. So it was uh, a person who was teaching me the method of having her use spelling to communicate. And she was able to do it so easily with this coach, right? And she was flowing. And then when I would try to do it, you know, she would be getting upset. She'd be, you know, screaming, crying. And the letterboard coach did this amazing thing where she had me come and sit down in her seat. And then she held the board the same way I had been holding it. And what I saw was that I was holding it so close to her face that it made the letters really hard to read. And, you know, you kind of had to you know, squint your eyes to actually see well. And so I was like, oh, this is why it's so frustrating for her. This is annoying. And so she showed me if I just moved it literally three inches, that that made all the difference in the world was this three inches. And so um, for me, being a better person has just been being asked to stop and consider and reflect how I might be contributing to the challenge that's happening in ways that I may not even realize. 
and to put myself in her shoes and to look very closely at the environment to notice if there are any loud sounds that if you're hearing is amazing that you might be irritated by to to go into spaces and notice bright lights and all of the things about the environment that we might just take for granted as you know part of this you know industrialized spaces that we live in that might be tolerable for some people's neurology but for other people's neurology is not tolerable at all and so it's just really expanded my ways of noticing my ways of reflecting on myself and how I'm contributing to whatever moment or interaction is happening. Um, and then just to really be humble and learn and listen um, and, and read as much as I can um, from autistic adults who are having this experience and, and value their, their expertise as, as lived experts on their own bodies and their own experiences and, and to not pressure myself into feeling like I need to have all the answers. I love it. Mm. I know that talking to you <laughs> helps me um, with Molly. Um, and so I appreciate you continuing to be my friend, a part of my support network and sharing with me um, as we venture into this journey and continue on this journey with our daughters. So, our last question for our discussion today is what are you advocating for in the broader community concerning your child or all children with disabilities and how can others support your advocacy? Yes, thank you for this question. So one of the biggest things that I'm advocating for is for all children to get access to all the various types of communication that are out there. So AAC, which stands for uh, Augmentative and Assistive Communication, comes in many forms, right? So there's computer programs, there's the letter board that my child uses, there's all sorts of ways for our children to communicate. And unfortunately, the ways that my child has gotten access to those things is through moving to a different county, oh. her to a private school, paying for private um, teachers and coaches for me that insurance didn't cover. And we're talking about communication. Communication mm -hmm. is a basic human right. And so I feel like if we change the ways that we um, are training the people who are entering these fields to learn about these things, right? Speech therapists, um, people in special education, that they actually get the opportunity to see these types of communication. One, it would completely change the way they teach. Um, I briefly, during the pandemic, signed my child up for um, a online public school um, as an option. We stayed for two days because they had her doing fourth grade, in quotes, um, What's three plus three? What's three plus two? And the exact lesson that she had done in kindergarten. And so mm. I lesson to what's three plus two? What's three times two? What's six divided by three? What's six times three? We did that lesson. We closed the computer, right? And I 
was so sad to know that there could have been other children on that screen who mm -hmm. if they just had the right supports to teach their families and to teach them how to use the various types of communication, some of those children wouldn't be sitting through kindergarten for the fourth year in a row. Mm. And so for me, I want it to be that it should not be that financial resources decide whether your child gets access to communication. It should be a basic human right that we all have. Yeah, I mean, that's deep. And it also sounds like a curriculum that speaks to the strengths and capabilities of each child. I think for me, advocacy um, comes in so many different forms. Um, one of the things that I would like to see more of in the world is more visibility of people with disabilities, right? Um, and people of color with disabilities. Um, there is um, more effort, and it's fortunately due to technology, uh, where there are more platforms for people of color, Black people in particular, um, with disabilities to have um, groups where we can see each other, right? And where we can support each other um, through social media and different things like that. Uh, but we don't see that happening a lot in, um, in media or in um, general spaces. Um, I think one of the pieces that, I'm, that I was speaking on other before was um, job and economic justice, like economic freedom, economic justice for people with disabilities. Um, there's a terrible history in this country of underpaying people with disabilities or, and or not giving them the appropriate um, amount of compensation for their work um, so that they can live um, and live so more fully. Um, I would like to see more um, educational opportunities. Like I would love it if my daughter could have an experience in college, right? And that she could have some um, more opportunities to prepare for that, right? And creative opportunities to engage her intellectually, but, but again, at a pace that works for her. I think some of the stigma around even um, delaying, um, uh, moving kids on to higher levels of, you know, progressing in school. I know that there's a lot of controversy around that, but um, I think, you know, there's so much stigma around, oh, well, I'm going to hold my child back or my child needs to be held back for a particular grade. Um, and really what it is, is an opportunity. I, I mean, I've had experiences where I've had to retake classes, right? Um, and sometimes that second go around really helped make it stick. It was like, okay, I just needed some more practice on that. I needed more exposure to it. I needed an opportunity to go deeper into that. And so I think that for some kids, that's what they need. And so even this, you know, time frame that we give kids to, you know, uh, get it right, right? And, and, you know, these EOGs at the end of the year, you have to, you know, score a certain amount um, and then uh, move on and know exactly what you're supposed to do and where you're supposed to do it in college, right? And then that college environment um, may not having any 
um, connection um, to, you know, what works for that child or that young adult um, once they get into college, having that information transfer from high school and their, you know, primary education on to secondary education. Um, and, and it's interesting too, because I think one of my uh, blind sides is that I am one of those people who has been acculturated into um, achievement being measured, measured by, you know, if you have a degree or whether or not you have a certain number of degrees. So I think that I'm still having to learn how to change my mind in terms of my expectations of the success for her mean that she has to go to college. Um, so I'm even open to that. So when I'm thinking about advocacy, I think that it's always evolving um, as I'm getting a better understanding of what those possibilities are. And I think what I'm what I'm trying to say is that if we can continue to work toward diverse ways for people to maximize their gifts and their talents so that they can be um, um, valuable and valued by society um, and receive the financial support um, and, and resources that they need um, to live a full life. So those are some of the things that I'm interested in um, as an advocate, as a parent um, looking toward the future. So we're going to close here. Um, but before we go, Maya, is there anything that's on your mind that you really wanted to share that you didn't get a chance to say today? I just wanted to say thank you for making this space and for creating this opportunity. I know that I learned a lot. I hope that it's useful to uh, all the listeners that you have. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Maya. I appreciate you and your time. And I appreciate my audience this time. Again, remember to like, follow, and share this wonderful podcast, Questions You Didn't Ask. Until next time, see you soon.